0: Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street. And this is episode 93 of The Lawyerist Podcast where we talk with Noah Weisberg about machine learning and AI as it relates to law practice. Today's
1: podcast is sponsored by Zero, beautiful legal accounting simplified. Find out more at Zero.com.
0: That's X-E-R-O.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive, and we think they are awesome. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So, Aaron, today's interview is
1: with Noah Weisberg of Kira Systems, and we're going to talk about machine learning and AI. And one of the things that is going to be immediately obvious is that taking advantage of the really amazing technology out there really depends on getting your documents in digital format. And I am constantly amazed at the resistance that I find to going paperless when I'm out and meeting lawyers. And the lawyers who aren't sure that it's a viable thing yet, um, which baffles me because I first went paperless over a decade ago. And the the bottom line is it's actually quite simple. You just need to buy a scanner and start scanning things and getting them in digital format. And then you can start doing amazing stuff like feeding them to a machine learning system that pulls all of the relevant provisions out of contracts. Or you can just do small amazing things like back them up so that if your office burns down, you don't lose them or encrypt them so that they
0: aren't vulnerable if you leave your computer at a coffee shop. It is absolutely true that in order to digitize a document, all you need to do is buy a scanner and scan stuff. That is not, though, the resistance lawyers have to converting to being paperless. And certainly there are, I mean, my experience, a handful of lawyers who otherwise see the benefits of paperless but just think it's not good. Mm -hmm. But I think 99% of lawyers who aren't yet paperless, it is neither of those issues. It's not that they don't realize that you just need a scanner and scan stuff. It's that they don't have the existing capacity to work through all their archives of file cabinets full of paper because they're too busy to do it themselves and it would cost too much to outsource the weeks and weeks of scanning it would take to get all those into digital form. They aren't trained in proper naming conventions of files and therefore fear that they won't be able to find the exact document they need when they need it, whereas right now they know exactly where it is in their paper folder. Um, They haven't yet thought through how they would need to adapt their workflows so that right now they know how to take the next step in a particular case. But if there's a new workflow they need to develop, they don't want to take the effort away from existing client work to think through how to do workflows. I think those are the major resistances. And probably syncing trust of the cloud or whatever the backup option would be to make sure you don't lose your files. I think that's the holdup. It's not... It's not that they don't know they could buy a scanner and scan stuff. It's then what? Yeah, you're probably right about
1: some of that. I mean, I find that one of the holdups, for example, is that lawyers who question everything in the world except this believe that going paperless means you're not allowed to have paper anymore. And... It of course, doesn't mean that. Of course, you can use some paper, but I think that same sort of going paperless must mean this thing. And I don't. I disagree with what I believe going paperless means. Seems to be one of the major obstacles, right? Like you can reconfigure it however you need it to be. Print out all the paper you want. It's fine. I, I met a lawyer just last week when he discovered that was like, oh, oh, I didn't realize I could keep paper. Well, of course you can, but maybe backing it up a little ways. Going paperless is one of those things that requires you to work on your business instead of just working in your business serving clients, which it's always easy to prioritize the client work that you have in front of you. But every once in a while, you do need to take a little bit of
0: time to think about workflow. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And to be clear, I am essentially paperless and advocate going paperless. I just think the, the barriers to doing it for most actively practicing existing small firms are are higher than just simply buy a scanner and scan stuff. But you're absolutely right that there are best practices for things like file structures and naming conventions, but there aren't rules or paperless police (laughs) that you have to adhere to. And I I think that's legitimately one of the concerns is someone hears you make it sound so simple and they realize that they don't want to do things exactly the way you do. And therefore, who are the police that That tell me how paperless should work. It reminds me, my wife and I last night were talking about a dinner party and the conversation was something like, well, do vegetarians eat this? And then we said, well, you know, there aren't vegetarian rules. Each person (laughs) decides what, which things they eat or don't eat. And you would have to ask them to know for sure. And similarly, like there aren't vegetarian police and there aren't paperless police. If you want to keep some files and you should probably always keep originals of important stuff where original signatures matter you get to decide what your rules are but for sure this conversation we're about to have with noah will indicate that getting your stuff in digital form has a tremendous number of benefits around the security of your documents around sharing with opposing counsel and clients around making sure that you have the ability to future-proof yourself, lots of benefits.
1: Yeah, I guess I would close this conversation maybe with a quote from David Allen's Getting Things Done, which is that you have to think about this stuff a little bit more than you are now, but not nearly as much as you think. And once you get your documents into digital format, you can do much more cool and amazing things with them, and it increases the value of them. So let's talk to Noah and find out what some of those things are.
2: Hi, I'm Noah Weisberg, and I'm a co-founder and the CEO of Cura Systems. Prior to co-founding Cura, I was an associate at Wild Practicing in mergers and acquisitions in New York.
1: So, uh, you're a bit of a big law ambassador to our podcast. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, uh, I guess so. We
1: like to we like to shake it up and bring in big law folks every once in a while.
2: <laughs> it's my roots. What can I say? I'll never <laughs> get away from them.
1: So, uh, the first time you and I talked, uh, Kira Systems was called Diligence Engine. Yes. Why the name change?
2: Well, um, when we started the company, it was based on my experience as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And in that job, I spent a lot of time reviewing contracts and then as I got more senior, supervising people, reviewing contracts. And I came to realize that there's a lot of room for improvement in this process and that technology could maybe help. Um, So we started out heavily focused on mergers and acquisitions and we continue to get a lot of use around mergers and acquisitions work. But we came to realize that there were a lot of other people who reviewed contracts for things that weren't to do with mergers and acquisitions and diligence engine was such a name that was connected with Merchants and Acquisitions. So it literally got to the point where we're finishing like half of our demos with people saying, wow, I could use this in something else. And it's like, yep, Diligence Engine, we're not just Diligence. Yeah. It was almost company tagline. And when your company tagline is like, we do lots of other stuff too, <laughs> maybe we should <laughs> uh, to rebrand. change the name to... <laughs> Uh, be something a little bit broader. So we still do do a ton of mergers and acquisitions related work, um, but we do a lot of other stuff. So for example, uh, Deloitte, which uses our system in their audit and consulting and some other parts of their business, um, not necessarily doing diligence, but doing things with extracting data contracts. And they're a big customer of ours. Like They have more than 3,000 people using the software in the U.S., Um, and so it just, it's really not just diligence engine, even though we do do a bunch of that work too.
1: You know, I, well, the first time you showed it to me, I had a red, you know, just a light bulb moment where I realized that, um, I'm always getting reprint requests and I always have to check and see whether that author has an agreement, has assigned us the copyright to their work or merely a license. So, do I have to go back to the author and get their permission before we share it? Or do I have the right to decide that on my own? And when you showed it to me, I just dropped all of our writer contracts in there and I was able to immediately grab the IP assignment terms from all out of all of those contracts and it would make it a piece of cake. So, that's not diligence. It's just common everyday utility, actually.
2: Yeah, like I think there are a lot of different, there may be three different situations when people review contracts, like doing it for diligence, trying to figure out sort of trying to find information, which might not even be diligence, right? Mm -hmm. Like what you did is arguably that first use case where it's just extracting a bunch of data out of contracts. Second use case would be trying to find out what's market, right? So Mm -hmm. you would look at a whole bunch of different uh, podcast and publisher contracts, just to see what is appropriate. And again, there you're doing that data extraction piece.
1: Oh, that'd be so cool. Like, cause everybody's like, this is a standard term. So I could actually spend some time digging out as many contracts as I can find and find out, do I really think this is a standard term?
2: Uh, You could, you know, in in like a large law context, that is the kind of thing, or maybe not even large law. But if it's something where it's a high enough value context, that might be something you would decide to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a third time you'd review contracts is in connection with negotiating them, where you're thinking like, is this a good deal or not? And so really, we are pretty focused on the first two of those use cases with helping people extract data out of a lot of contracts. Um, But we realized, like you're saying, that there are just so many situations when people do that work and diligence was just really constraining us and constraining our thinking and making it hard to convey to customers what we did.
1: I mean, I, I guess if I can abstract it a little bit, what it really is, is a way to look at anywhere from a small to a huge body of documents, contracts with sort of an an overview. Like my my wife is a lawyer for the educators union in Minnesota Mm -hmm. and they have contracts all over the state. Um, Maybe it would be useful for them to at a glance see what kind of similar provisions look like across the state. Like what if there's a big project where they're trying to get um, the same type of provision into every contract around a new law or something? sure would be nice to figure out what's already in those contracts, find out if we are normalizing them right now. I imagine that's a pretty time-intensive manual process. Yeah, I
2: think there are, uh, so it's kind of one of the nice, like there were some hard surprises with uh, starting up this company, right? Like it turned out it took a lot longer than expected to get the tech to work. It took us a while to figure out how to explain to lawyers why they should pay us money. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then we had this really nice surprise, which is that there are tons of people who spend tons of time reviewing contracts and it has nothing to do with kind of M&A or another thing we were thinking about when we started out was maybe people pulling data out of contracts out of leases. But it's like so much broader than that, that it really is something for transactional lawyers that they spend huge amounts of time doing.
1: Well, and so we've been talking about what it does. Um, but not the way in which it does it, which gets us closer to the subject of our podcast today. But when you were initially showing me Diligence Engine, you know, you very casually were like, let's see what's in this giant, what all the um, choice of law provisions in this giant pile of contracts. And you just clicked a button and there they were. And it and it, it's it was like such a boring thing, right? I'm used to things yep. happening that way now. Yeah. And then I think there was a, a, a pause of a beat or two or three. And then I was like, whoa, wait a second. Like what you just did used to take an army of clerks weeks or months to do and then deliver me a manual document. And if I wanted that document to have anything else in it, I had to send it right back down to that army of clerks to start over. And it's that teaching the computer how to read the document and pull out those provisions is actually the holy shit awesome part of this that is so smooth it's boring. But what's going on under there? Is there that's the that's machine learning, right? Is that am I using that term correctly? Uh, you are.
2: So maybe we should step back for a second and just uh, describe to people in case they have forgotten, because no doubt they read every single thing that you write. <laughs> but <laughs> just in case they forgot. no doubt. <laughs> uh, so a quick uh, quick explanation is, our software will read through contracts and find stuff that you tell uh, it to in there. So if you felt like finding. The assignment clause or the choice of law clause or the arbitration section or even what arbitration rules the arbitration section points to. uh, The system could automatically go through and find that information and dump it into a chart uh, or into Excel or into uh, an XML output that you could then pull out using an API. But basically, the system will find stuff automatically in contracts and pull it out. So what you're asking is, how does it do that? And so there's two ways that, or a bunch of ways, but two basic ways that you might get software to do this. And the sort of one that I think a lot of people would think of initially is just a rules-based approach, right? So if you think about searching Lexis or Westlaw uh, or some other research database, you might use a terms and connectors type search. And that's pretty close to a rules-based search. So if I was trying to find an assignment clause, I might say, I'd like to find all sentences that have the word assignment within five words of the word agreement. Um, and that would theoretically show me all assignment clauses. So that that's what you call a classic rules-based approach. In recent years, people have come to think that rules-based approaches aren't uh, an especially accurate way to find information. That uh, they may work if you know what you're looking for. Like if you know that every assignment clause in your pile of documents has the word agreement within five words of it then you're good but in fact lots of the time you don't necessarily know what you're looking through so for us uh, our system needs to be able to work even if we haven't seen the contracts even if it, we haven't seen the contracts in advance uh, and even if they're in the form of poor quality scans so what we did instead is we used what's called machine learning so with machine learning you take special algorithms and an algorithm is just a fancy name for a computer program. So we have special algorithms that are really good at learning word-to-sentence-to-paragraph-length text. And we've spent years at building up these algorithms. Uh, My partner in the business has a PhD in computer science. We have several other people with PhDs in computer science on the team. They have spent years finally tuning these algorithms to work well at learning word-to-sentence-to-paragraph-length text. And what we do is we give our system examples of what we'd like it to find looks like and from that it learns uh, what these clauses look like so i spent the first year year and a half of our company's existence 10 hours a day six days a week just reading random contracts and saying this is an assignment clause this is a change of control clause this is a confidentiality clause this is both assignment and change of control we fed those examples into the system, and based on those examples, our system was able to build up a model of what assignment, change of control, confidentiality, and a whole bunch of other clauses look like.
1: Gotcha. Uh, and you're, you're teaching the computer how to understand, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's machine learning in a nutshell, right?
2: Exactly. So a really good uh, machine learning example, if you'd like one more, is yeah. around translation programs. Um, So, people will remember translation programs from, like, 10 years ago. Maybe you had one in your PDA, uh, you know, your Palm or Pilot Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And it was probably a rules-based system, right? So, if you think about uh, translating from French, you would think it would be amenable to a rules-based system, right? So, you would say chaise equals chair and table equals table and ordinateur is computer, and anytime you saw ordinateur, you would put down a computer in the app. And those systems actually worked pretty poorly. If you remember, like I think I had one mm-hmm. in my—I can't even remember what device it was. It was like pre-Palm Pilot, <laughs> um, and it was—it was like quite mediocre. But what—if uh, people have used Google Translate—know that now translation systems are pretty okay. Um, and how Google Translate works is not at all a rules-based thing. But instead, what they did is they built Algorithms that are good at learning and they gave them tons of text that was equivalent. So they would do something like take the transcripts of the European Parliament and they would say, here is the same phrase in English and Latvian and French and Italian and give just tons and tons and tons of examples. And after heaps of examples, the system would actually learn um, what these different sentences and words looked like in
1: real life. Gotcha. And so if you feed enough examples in, you can, in theory, train a system to learn just about anything.
2: And so machine learning is behind a lot of things in the world today. Like the reason that our spam, uh, our inboxes are not filled with spam or that, uh, cars might drive themselves or that Netflix gives us pretty okay recommendations. Um, that's all machine learning. Um, And I think we'll start to see lots more. One of the interesting things about machine learning, though, is often we just see the outputs. So like what you were talking about, where a system just shows you the governing law, but you don't actually see the system learning governing law. um, Or spam doesn't make it into your inbox. Or that sentence on that uh, Lithuanian web page you're checking out just happens to get translated. But it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily clear to you how that occurred. Mm -hmm. Um, But so many of these wow moments today are powered by machine learning. One of the things that I think is really cool about our system, uh, not to be all hypey here, but is that you can actually train it for new stuff. And uh, so I could teach it to find a further assurances clause or um, a revenue recognition uh, clause. Or clauses that are relevant to revenue recognition. And to me, one of the really amazing things about that is I think it's like one of the only times uh, that you actually get to see machine learning in action. Um, And I know when people do, they often like really smile at it.
1: Very cool. Um, So, machine learning is one thing. What's AI? Because artificial intelligence slash AI gets thrown around a lot. And I'm tempted to suggest that it is becoming quickly robbed of all meaning. But maybe not. Yeah,
2: (laughs) Um, maybe. Uh, We never used to use AI in our marketing stuff. And then eventually we almost had to um, just because that's what people understood. Um, So the idea with artificial intelligence is it is some kind of machine intelligence ability to do something um, that's not human driven. So that would broadly be artificial intelligence within artificial intelligence. There's kind of a uh, strong AI. So that is like a machine that actually has consciousness and or artificial general intelligence, which is
1: a brain, a
2: brain, like an ability, like,
1: like you and I can go do math one day, write a book the next day, learn how, learn physics another day. We, you know, we can do all kinds of different things with the same brain.
2: Exactly. Whereas weak AI um, is something where a system is able to do one task well in a way that approximates or maybe even betters human performance. So our system is really good at finding information and in contracts. Uh, car driving systems are really good at driving cars. But if you had our system try to drive a car, like I would not get in that car.
1: Gotcha. Uh, and you, you wrote a pretty neat uh, article about that where at least where we don't have strong AI yet, that's, you know, the singularity. That's, um, yeah. that's we'll all be out in space and uploaded to computers or we'll be serving <laughs> our robot overlords. But, so we don't <laughs> have or, that or yet.
2: Happily frolicking and, uh, yeah. you know, a world free of work or who knows. <laughs>
1: but, but so, uh, like, Watson is really good at Jeopardy and now at diagnosing medical patients. But Watson, yeah. uh, the IBM, you know, quote, in, in quotes, AI, is is not built to do legal research necessarily, although the guys at Ross are working on that.
2: Yeah, I think if you are hearing about AIs right now, they are weak AIs, right? Like they're good at specific tasks. And I think a lot of people... um, AI is an area that seems to generate a ton of hype. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think we can all imagine there are tons of tasks in our everyday life that probably a computer could do and might even be able to do better than us. Um, And... That's a really appealing thought. Um, the thing is, is that the AIs that exist right now, uh, and most of the good ones are machine learning systems. Uh, the things that you're hearing about today are subsets of machine learning. Um, so, But there are other things that fall within AI that are not machine learning. So like an, a rules-based expert system could be an artificial intelligence, and there are neat things going on there too. Uh, but many of the kind of things that are getting attention today are machine learning based but they're very specific and good at certain tasks so Watson like the Jeopardy thing super super impressive does that mean it would be good at doing like e discovery probably not right like could IBM get it to be good at doing e discovery maybe like they have a lot of money it's certainly with money and time, you can solve many problems, but there are specific systems that are really great at deciding whether documents are relevant or not relevant and privileged or not privileged. Gotcha. And ditto for many other tasks within law. So even though there are these things that seem like really impressive machine learning or AI systems, it doesn't necessarily mean they're that good at anything beyond the specific tasks that they're really good at. And that's not a knock on them, it's just I think
1: so let me take two minutes so we can hear from our sponsors and when we come back I want to talk a little bit more about the relationship between machine learning and AI and more importantly talk about what this means for lawyers and how lawyers should read news about the future of law and robot lawyers and all that kind of stuff so we'll be back in two minutes
0: billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice problem is you still have to bill those hours even if your law firm has an accountant Tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for, and writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Xero, including Lawyerist. Get a free trial at zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software.
1: This podcast is supported by Ruby receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you wanna be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, so if you can sum up for me, How should we think about the relationship between machine learning and AI? Machine learning, it sounds like, is a form of weak AI, and it doesn't necessarily have to be AI. It's just a thing where you can teach computers how to do things.
2: Uh, Yeah. So, I would think about AI as an overarching category and machine learning as a subcategory within AI. Like one form of AI, many forms of AI are machine learning based. Gotcha. Uh, But there could be other forms of AI that are not machine learning based. And as far as the weak versus the strong AI, a strong AI system could be and almost certainly would be machine learning based. But that doesn't necessarily mean that like today we're not there. So,
1: so, we, should, so we should be, what we have mostly today is a bunch of machine learning systems.
2: We have a bunch of machine learning or other experts like expert systems, uh, which can be fine in certain areas that solve specific
1: tasks well. Gotcha. Okay. So, every day, basically, there's an article that comes out about artificial intelligence in law. It's maybe an Robot opinion. Robot
2: lawyers are yeah. coming to get us.
1: Well, and and today I, I sarcastically observed on Twitter that um, the last sentence in every, somewhere in the first paragraph of every story about AI and law, you have to either state that it's coming for lawyers' jobs or that it's not going to take over lawyers' jobs. Um, because that is the ultimate question, uh, I guess. It's the 42 for lawyers. But um, <laughs> how, should we, how should we be thinking about this news? Like, what's a more intelligent way to look at this news and to understand this, uh, the development of AI and the intersection with law practice and law um, that's a little bit better than the binary? Are they taking our jobs or not?
2: So, uh, a couple different things to think about. One is there's a ton of hype around AI. So there's a lot of, there are some solutions that are making an impact today uh, that are kind of AI-e solutions. So to me, uh, prominent sort of examples, uh, the e-discovery technology-assisted review or predictive coding systems, Mm -hmm. like those are I think an AI. uh, And I think those have made a pretty significant impact on large-scale litigation. Um, I think that will, over time, flow down to uh, all litigation discovery. Uh secondary would be contracts uh, where we have a system that we believe to be pretty strong in this area, but there are other people with other systems in this area, and people are actually using them. Like we've got lots of mostly big firms, but not all, that use our system to actually make a real impact in their process. Uh, and then there are expert systems, too, which are, so things like Neodologic, where people have been able to build apps, including for access to justice purposes, that can make an impact in those areas. And there are other things, too, like quantitative legal prediction. Um, so the first thing from that is there are specific areas that artificial intelligence or machine learning, in some cases, is being applied to. And it is having an impact in those areas. As a lawyer, one of the things you should be thinking about is... Is there work that you're doing that just seems like high volume, highly repetitive, uh, actually needs to be done accurately? Because in some cases, a computer may be better at doing uh, a high accuracy demanding task than a human is, especially where it's high volume. So if there are attributes like that of the tasks that you're doing, you should think about the fact that they probably will get automated at some point and maybe not base your career around those things.
1: (laughs) It's starting to sound though like... um... We should not be thinking about this in terms of is this going to replace my job, Um, but more in terms of hey, here's a really cool tool that maybe I can use in my practice.
2: Yeah, to the extent your job is doing a really repetitive thing, uh, and that is your practice, um, maybe stop. (laughs) Maybe stop, or or maybe do way more of it too. Right? Like AI can be real opportunity.
1: Right. It's a chance to scale.
2: Yeah, the the example that I really like is uh, refrigeration. Mm-hmm. So in the early 1970s, an average refrigerator sold in the U.S. took about 2,000 kilowatt hours a year of electricity to run. Um, today, it's closer to like 500 kilowatt hours a year of electricity to run. Wow. And your average fridge is 20% bigger and costs 60% less. Right. Uh, you would think, based on the fact that it takes about 25% the electricity to run a refrigerator today as it did in the 70s, that we would use less electricity on refrigeration, right? Mm-hmm. But that is not so. Like, in fact, apparently we use more electricity keeping stuff cool than we did back then. And I think the same, that analogy can sort of flow through to people and AI Right? Like it may take you a, so a user of our software, our clients tell us that they can complete contract reviews in 20 to 60% and sometimes even 90% less time and do it as well or better than they could without the software. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing 20 to 90% less work, right? It's that they can review an individual contract in less time. Uh, But that actually opens up possibilities to review more stuff.
1: Um, I, I read this just fascinating piece by Stephen Wolfram, where he pointed out that as as we can sort of automate more things, we can do more complex things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, the complexity of the things that we need to do increases. And, you know, it, we may be, those of us who think that automation means we need fewer lawyers may be totally off. We may need twice as many lawyers because the relationships that we are contracting for have gotten so much more complicated that we need more people to do it. Or that just there people are able to contract in more relationships or they're able to do more law and so there need to be more lawyers delivering services although the nature of those services may look a little different
2: yeah like practice in 20 years may be very different than it is now Mm -hmm. but that it does not necessarily follow that there will be no practice because computers can do some stuff that lawyers currently do
1: yeah there was another maybe there's another interesting article uh piece from that uh where he he points out like it used to be that in order to get anything done you had to Um, create like a checklist or procedure and then have humans go do it. Like think about how you would print something out before there was even a typewriter, right? To print something out meant writing it out in longhand, um, sending it down the street to the printers where they would carefully typeset it. I mean, like you couldn't print something (laughs) and now you just send it to your printer. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And and yet life goes on. Right.
1: And so contracts are essentially a set of directions to humans. So as we, as we, just as, as you no longer need a set of directions to humans to print something out, maybe, maybe we can see a different way of doing contracts going forward, which is a different way, not the end of lawyers, I think. Yeah.
2: I think to me, the really interesting thing is what are some of the businesses that are going to be created by and service offerings that are going to be created by efficiency. Mm -hmm right? Like sort of right now, what we're thinking about is what does it mean for my business? If I review or for clients of ours as business, if they review contracts in 20 to 60% less time, like how does that fit into their financial model? But over the medium term, I think the question is really going to change to be what are new things that we can offer because of the fact that we can do this more efficiently. And I don't know what the answers to those are, but I think there are some really exciting businesses. Cool shit is what we can offer. We can offer cool shit. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. Like you think about how many like underserved legal consumers there are right now, right? Like so many people who don't get lawyers. And it's like, well, we can't really afford to offer them services at the prices that they'd be willing to pay. Right. And like, okay, so now maybe there's technology coming along that will make it affordable to provide Services to people that otherwise right now would look at getting a lawyer and be like, uh uh-uh, uh, like not going to pay for that. Right. And, uh, I-, I think it's really exciting. Like, I don't know what, um, what those businesses will be, what those offerings will be, but I think they'll be really exciting. And, like, I think they apply across the spectrum. Like, I think they apply whether we're talking about individuals who definitely are underserved by lawyers today. Uh, but I think it goes all the way up to like the largest clients too, where there are large corporates that, have all these legal needs that aren't being met because it's just not either packaged or priced in a way that works for them to get these things, these problems solved.
1: So, on the optimistic note that lawyers should see opportunity in news about AI and stop asking the question, are we going to lose our jobs or not? I think that's a great time to say thank you so much for giving us a basic grounding in machine learning and AI and Um, Helping us think through uh, all of this news that's coming out every day that is either doom and gloom or the sky's the limit. So thank you so much, Noah.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed this. Great to be on.
1: make sure you catch next week's episode of the lawyerist podcast subscribe to the Lawyerist podcast in itunes or in your favorite podcast app you can listen to it at lawyerist.com/slash podcast you can also subscribe to the lawyerist insider our weekly newsletter just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top we'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode thanks for listening